everyone and welcome to Player 456 Ask Squid Games Pod. My name's Colin McMillan and I'm joined by my fellow frontman, Jack Shaw. Jack, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, man. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good. Um, we're carrying on our conversation about episode four of um, Squid Game, uh, Stick It to the Team. We are at an interesting part where you're starting to see the guards are starting to be seen moving the bodies around from obviously the, the previous Honeycomb game. And everybody's just getting put into their coffins, Jack, and straight into those incinerators. No messing, eh? There's absolutely no messing about. We've realised that these guys are pretty evil with nail gunning alive people into boxes and putting them in the incinerator. So we we know what's happening here. We, we've seen this before, but we're with John Ho as well. Um, he switches his mask to a square mask, which makes him basically a boss. It disguises himself as a supervisor, I suppose we can call him here. I'm still a little bit worried about what his future holds, and we'll obviously get there over the over the coming weeks. Yeah, interesting stuff, man. We're getting we're getting there. We're getting into the meat and bones of this episode almost. We are. Um, there's a really nice scene here, just where he where he swaps the mask over. He's obviously hiding himself while he's doing it, and one of the other guards spots him doing this and actually questions him about why he isn't doing his job. And then the absolute horror from that guard when he realises that he's, now, he's actually questioning a supervisor now was quite, I quite enjoyed that. And our man John Ho kind of shows his smarts here by immediately mimicking what he heard in the previous episode by reminding the triangle that he shouldn't be speaking to a supervisor unless he's spoken to. Which gives you a little bit, I think, of confidence in this lad that he is actually quite clever and he's going to be able to think on his feet. But it's also really quite interesting that you can tell that even though they've got masks and boiler suits on, pink boiler suits, there is a horror. Like I spoke about this before, like you could tell the way that when Jihoon was asking for a chocolate milk, the way that the guy looked at him, even though he's got a mask on, you can just tell what's happening behind that mask. And that guy really, really shit himself. He thought, oh no, because they obviously know what's going on. I don't know how long they've been working there, if they've been, if they've worked in previous Squid Games in other countries or whatever, but they know you don't fuck about with your superiors here there's very much a hierarchy of who's in charge and you don't interrupt you don't speak to squares and John Ho obviously a little bit of luck I suppose that it happened to him in the past because otherwise he wouldn't have had a clue and he would have been a little bit perturbed I suppose that the triangle would have been sort of scared of him and he wouldn't have known what to say or do so a little bit of luck there but he deserves a little bit of luck he's got He's brave and he's been in there and he's doing things by himself. He does. Um, we go back to the, the sort of main area at this point in the episode and Jihun approaches player 67. He walks up to her and says, hey, pickpocket. <laughs> he's, he's just the coolest guy going at this point. It's later revealed her name is, like we said, King Seabrook. Um, he invites her to join the team and the group tonight saying, if anything happens, come by my bed, join our team. But she says she doesn't trust anybody in there. And... Um, Jihun suddenly becomes a philosopher and says, well, we don't trust people here because we want to. It's because we don't have anybody else. And she doesn't agree to join the team at that point, but you can tell there's an RC being sown at this point and, you know, she's joining the good guys eventually, don't you? You do, because you do have... She's one of the, the characters that obviously got a little bit uh, a full background story, basically. You know she's been through a lot of shit. Her family have been human trafficked or at least paid for it and then not been brought across the border. Her little brother is in a home. 
you do feel for her and you want her to succeed, basically. And you can tell why she doesn't trust people because she's been fucked over so badly by these human traffickers, these these criminals herself. Don't get me wrong, she she's not a brilliant person. She pickpockets, she steals. But again, this is the grey areas that we speak about so much. The circumstances behind that sort of explain their actions. Absolutely. We now get to see a little bit more about what's going on, Jack, with this doctor, player 111, um, in the hidden room. You see that he actually is harvesting organs. You see him actually removing organs from some of the bodies that have been taken away from the, the, the previous games. You also learn here that there's a bunch of these guards involved in it. Um, guards number 28 arrives in the room. But you find out here that number 29 also should be there, but hasn't shown up. So, interesting here, you find out the guards have numbers, and they're known as their numbers as well. And the fact that number 29 hasn't shown up, Jack, becomes a little bit more interesting later on in the episode. Like I mentioned in the previous episode, I kind of thought at this point that the whole criminal organisation were harvesting organs here, like the eyeball. We've spoke about this on our other podcasts, about I am an organ donor, but I don't even know if I ticked the box not to give my eyes away. It was a long time ago I felt out the organ donation thing, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of people will be in the same boat where your eyes just feel more important. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, we have, we have spoken this before. I, I did, with my donor card, I, I said they could take everything apart from my eyes. And I say that with... Um, no bad feeling about it. I don't. I, I'm not ashamed of that because anybody that knows me knows I wear contact lenses. My prescription is minus seven point five, so my eyes are fucking no use to anybody. <laughs> so I think for with your eyes, mate, it's more of a when you're in the coffin or you're at your funeral. If if your family are coming to see you, they can take away all your organs and nobody knows any better, Jack. But if you were sat there with empty eyes, I think the thought of that's quite alarming. If you think your family's seen that, and also if you're quite religious. I think people want the idea that they'll be able to see heaven or hell, whatever it may be. So your eyes, for some reason, do have a sentimental attachment to this sort of thing. Player 111 is covered in blood. He's been cutting into people. You see the body lying there with its organs getting put into organ boxes and they're expecting somebody to come and pick them up. So number 28 turns up. He's meant to be in cahoots with number 29, but obviously John Ho's number 29, so he doesn't turn up. I was a little bit not confused here, but I don't really, at this point in time, without thinking ahead, I'm not sure how they are getting the, the organs off of the island. Are they scuba diving? Are they getting on speedboats? I think they show you later on, but I've not re-watched the last four or five episodes as of yet, so I can't quite remember how they explain that. I took a little bit of a deep dive into like how much a human body's worth. Is it worth these guards doing this basically and I found out that a dead body will fetch around $550,000 It's bad isn't it Like the questions that come from that are who's paying that what are they doing with it and why do they need it it's bizarre like, I could understand in some regards a full dead body being worth that because somebody that's maybe got rid of somebody could disguise a body or do something with it to kind of disguise a crime or something like that but paying that just for organs that are getting shipped out from the Squid Game, I just don't know how that works. It's it's mind-boggling, but there must be some sort of dodgy company or dodgy people doing it. As far as I know, there's a massive black market for organs. There really is. It's not just something that you see in 
hostile the film. It is a real-life black market worth tens, hundreds of millions of pounds a year because if you are, for example, a former drug addict, an alcoholic, you're not getting a liver. But if you've got the money and you want to survive because you need your liver, then go out and try and buy one. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You're desperate. Is this just rich people being able to skip the queue in some ways, basically, then, as well? That's... Yeah, it's probably another um, commentary on ding, ding, ding capitalism and just being able to buy what you want for money and being that horrible person that says, right, okay, I don't care where I get it from, but I want a heart, so get me a heart. I will give you $500,000 for it because I have the money and I want to be alive. So you can, it's all—it's mad because you can kind of, like, can you imagine you're a billionaire, Colin, and you wake up and somebody says, you need a new heart, we're not giving you one, you're going to die in a year, and you can find one for half a million pounds, peanuts. Yeah, yeah I could, well, if you're a billionaire, you could do it, you could you could go to somebody and say, listen, I need your heart, I'll make sure your family has the greatest life they could possibly have, but you're not going to be part of it. And you'd find somebody that would give up their heart for that, for sure. So we obviously know that Player 111 has been given information about the games already, about the Honeycomb game, and this is where there's further explanation to this, basically, and the guards sort of tell him that, well, do they say here there's reduced food? Because we had this conversation with, there's the right amount of food, but they seem to know that there's going to be some sort of thievery, basically, which is going to lead to a fight, so Player 111 better go and find the hardest team to survive because there's it's going to fucking kick off at some point. You better you better find the big bad guys or you're not going to survive the night, basically. Yeah, there's there's definitely a mention around rations. I'm not sure if they say there's not enough or they've reduced it, but they do mention that there's rations and it's going to cause issues. So find yourself a side and stay safe. So I mean that that's another bit of inside information he's getting. And then he gets his next bit of information, Jack, in a, in a most bizarre way, doesn't he? you correctly point out to me off air, one of the biggest mysteries of the show so far. Yes, how do they get that pink piece of paper inside a hard-boiled egg? <laughs> so, the only the only way I've come up with for doing that is to feed that bit of paper to the chicken first, and then the chicken then lays the egg with that already in it. That's that's what I'm going with. Yeah, but it's not a jobby. That... Chickens, as far as I know, have got one hole. Jobby, by the way, is a very Scottish word. I do apologise. Yeah. For Australian listeners, jobby means shit. <laughs> yes, it means shit, basically. So when a chicken has got one hole that it takes the toilet through and lays eggs through, but they're different things. So even if you fed a bit of paper to a chicken, it would come out in its poo rather than it's not going to go into the egg. All I can think of is that his eggs, his eggs been tampered with and they've made sure that when he gets to wherever he is in the queue, it's one of the guys that's anonymous him that's handing him the doctored egg. But you're right, I, I don't know how to do it. Could you could you use a syringe and make a tiny hole and poke paper through? I, I, I don't think you could. But there must be a way. Well, they've managed to get 456 people to an island, so maybe there is a way, yeah. But this player 111 approaches the baddies, basically, because they're the hardest team. Ask them to join. Player 212 is not having much of it, and the dubbing here is terrible. It's like, why should we let you in? It's really, it's really not great, the dubbing, but she's not keen on a new person coming into the team, and the gangster basically threatens the doctor, saying, look, you better go in the coma, sit down, and if you don't, 
I will kill you, basically. And that is when player 111 whispers into his ear that he knows what the next game is. This annoyed me a little bit. Like, this show isn't perfect. Why, if you're the doctor, you're a smart guy, would you cup your hand into the guy's ear and whisper in front of the rest of the team? Would you not just wait until there's a quiet moment where you could have that conversation with him? Because it's so clear that he's told them something by that whisper, I think. I think you're right. Like, I, I, the trope of cupping your hand to somebody's ear <laughs> it would automatically just make everybody's head turn around because, you know, a secret's been told. I think you've also got to remember that this guy knows that shit's about to go down. He knows these people are probably his only chance of surviving it. He's reached out to them and he's been rejected. And he's just been told that they're going to kill him if he does anything. So he's probably desperate. And the thought of maybe waiting for a quiet moment to try and talk to him, he's maybe worried he's not going to have that. And to be fair, he really doesn't. Because it's not long after this, it does all start kicking off. So I think it's just an act of a desperate man at this point. The frontman definitely knows that the managers or supervisors basically know things are going to kick off. So they use the tannoy here, mate. And I think you notice something here about just the language that's getting used. Yeah, it's the, I mean, we've, we've speculated and given them sort of job titles in, in previous episodes, but I believe this is the first time the show's actually confirmed the three actual roles and what they're called. So the Tanai alerts the guards basically to get to their location, and their location is basically to get to the room just outside the main room, ready to storm it afterwards. But it calls them managers, soldiers, and workers. So that's the three definitions that we'll probably forget, and we'll still refer to them as guards and all sorts of other things and pink suits. But that, I believe that was the first time the show has actually given them their actual titles, which is managers, soldiers, and workers. Yeah, it's really quite interesting. Again, get the bell out. That is such a capitalist thing to think. You've got such a hierarchy. It's just non-stop, this capitalism thing throughout the whole show. But we know that, but I'm still going to ring that bell every time it pops up, basically. Cut back to the main hall. You've got Ji-Hoon Sang with Ali and Player One. They agree to stick together tonight because it's it's pretty clear that the baddies, the way they're acting, they're planning some nasty shit. And this coming up is my favourite scene, I think, of the show. But before we get there, there's something quite terrifying happening, so there is. There is. And you know what? A friend of ours spoke to me today about this show. And he actually listened to episode one of the podcast, but he's not watched any of the show. So he's an idiot, right? But as I did say to him, have you watched the show? And he goes, I'm not going to watch it. It looks too scary. And I said to him, listen, mate, it's, it's actually not a scary show. It's a shocking show rather than scary. And you'll be shocked by what happens, but I don't think you'll be scared. And then I sat down and watched this episode back. And there's this 10 second countdown where the light suddenly dim. The 10 seconds appears on the clock. And I just put myself in the position of somebody sat in that room knowing that basically it's about my Royal Rumble. And it's about to kick off, and then the light changes, and it starts, it's dark, and then it's pitch dark, and then it's kind of lit up for a second, and then it's just on and off, on and off, flickering. And this is all happening while the front man observes it, using infrared cameras. And I just thought the, the, the build-up to it was almost as scary as what actually happened to me. It really is, because this, I'm going to call it the murder game, basically. At the start of this, there's 107 players, so there's a number. Here we go. Here we go, yes. 107 exists in an energy that nudges them towards material success. That's basically what this, again, this whole show's about, is money, material things, 
And again, I don't know if they've looked at the 107 and if they are using it as a script writing thing, but that one word sort of popped out to me and I thought I may as well, may as well tell you about it. I'm going to tell you about all these numbers all the time, mate. <laughs> I, I like it. I'm all for it. So thank you. You see very quickly, um, Jock's sneaking out of his bed. He's kept the broken bottle from earlier. He makes a beeline straight to the female player who basically told everybody that they were the ones that skipped the dinner queue and got double helpings. And he stabs her to death with this bottle quite horrifically. It's not just a, a stab and you're dead. It's literally stab, 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 stab. It's awful. And it just sets the scene for what's about to go on. The, this is when the lights really start flickering and this sort of nightmarish sequence starts, Jack, that I referred to earlier. With it being dark in the room, then pitch black, then lit. And that just cycles through that so that if you're trying to attack somebody, it's not clear what you're doing. If you're trying to get away, it's not clear what you're doing. It just makes everything harder and more frightening. It's absolutely brutal. And the fact that you've got your front man and all the guards just silently stood watching this, doing nothing about it, it just seems to make it worse. Yeah, I'm surprised that, well, there is a, a warning, a photosensitive warning, actually, that I did notice on Netflix that I didn't realise was there because if you have epilepsy, I would really advise not watching this scene. The, the flickering, it just creates absolute chaos. There's a feeling of just not knowing what's going on. But even when I was watching it back today, just when the lights go on and off, it's so well produced because what you see when the lights are on is just fucking terrifying. How long do you think it took 101 to go and stab that girl? It felt like about 30 seconds after the light went off, he just went and murdered her. And this sort of synchronisation again with his first murder, where he murders his gangster friend, it's very similar. And then he kills somebody else later in this episode in the same frenzied fashion. This guy's a psychopath. Oh, he's an absolute psycho, and just to to go back to the lighting and stuff like that as well, I think there's there's a nod here to your old-fashioned horror movies. So if you think of a black-and-white horror movie outside with the lightning happening and the thunder and things happening as the lightning goes on and off and people with knives and all that sort of stuff, and I think this is like a kind of an internal and inside version of being outside in an old horror movie. But yeah, this this guy again, uh, Dark Sue, he goes straight for Kangsie Book again at this point, the second woman in a row will point out that he's went for this big, strong, gangster, alpha male. Two women he's went for. But she's got her knife, remember, that she had hidden in her pocket from her induction. And with the threat of that, and of course a kick in the balls, she manages to get away from him. But she's still not safe, and neither is her heroes, are they? Well, that's it. There's an, an incidental character here that jumps down. And he's a little bit of a hero because he, he saves 67 and then gets murdered for his heroism basically his bravery he gets stabbed to death again in a frenzied attack by 101 these incidental characters sort of pop in and out of the out of the show every tv show and film sort of needs them you know so yeah i just think it's absolutely fantastic and i probably i'm going to say this now and i've said it before and i'll probably say it next episode and the next episode after but this i think is definitely my stand out scene for chaos and actually making me feel a little bit scared sitting watching it by myself. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely up there for me. It's Like I said earlier, it's the introduction to you as a viewer and as a, obviously from the, from the contestant's point of view, that the games are not just the only thing that's risky business here. The whole situation is treacherous, 
dangerous and people are going to die at any point. There was an idea from people watching these first few episodes that the games are quite short, actually. They don't spend a lot of time on the games. And in the past, that's been because they've been building character and moving the story forward. Now, there's horror happening out with the games and within them, and it just sets the bar up higher and makes the risks even greater. Why do they stop the game? Basically, why does the front man decide to stop the game? So, our, our heroes are basically back-to-back with the bad guys, so to speak, ready to go. Um, Ali's been kicking ass with a big, massive metal pipe or something that he's got, but they realise that 001 is missing, and they've been looking for him, and he's managed to climb himself right to the very top of all the structures, beds that they've all put together, and he starts screaming and shouting and saying, this has to stop, we are all going to die here tonight, this needs to stop now. And that is when the front man takes a look and stops the game. Jack. Um, the game finishes, the lights come on, and the guards all come in. And is this the biggest clue so far that we all missed watching it? That player 001 is in charge of all these things here in this game? I do think it is a massive clue here, but I do also think there is another argument as to why the game was stopped. There's a little nod to Battle Royale here, by the way, where one of the students tells the teacher that if he just keeps killing everybody as a demonstration, then nobody's going to be left to play their game. They've got the sort of infrared and they've got all the numbers and like the body temperatures and he decides to call it a day when player one says he's scared but also there's 80 players left and you need 80 players to have a nice round game of tug of war so I don't know if he gets to a point and says look there's only 80 people left alive rush in now stop it Yeah. rather than him being scared I don't know I think there's an argument for both here. No, you, you, you could be right as well, yeah. Spot on. 80 is a number. Yeah, I was just about to ask you. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about the number 80. 80 can uh, manage people effectively for achieving a common goal. I don't really know if I can shoehorn that in here, but one thing I do think kind of rings true again with the number is it resonates with uh, realism. And this is like the realest, scariest part of the show. I'm just fucking throwing things in here, by the way, but I do think that this is the the point where I felt most involved and most sort of panicked watching it. I actually was going to say, mate, your, your numerology here, I can actually see a lot of things that kind of fit into this. Your 80 people trying to effectively achieve a common goal fits into your teams, try to work together to win the tug of war. They're doing stuff with their steps and keeping them all straight to get something done inclusiveness when they talk about how they actually gathered the teams for the tug of war they didn't want girls in it they ended up with girls in it and then obviously that last word balance is absolutely key in a tug of war you're better at the number numerology that's not even a word numerology than me colin well done if you find out what the facts are i'll try and link it to the show right and i'll do it that way yeah so as the guards sort of make their way around the the dormitory, they identify the dead. John Ho approaches Ji Hoon and quietly sort of asks him, Have you seen Huang and Ho, which is his brother's name? And this is when the name thing comes into it here because we've been calling the characters by their names since we started the podcast, but we don't know a lot of their names until now. You know, and this is sort of when Ji Hoon says we don't know people's name, and that leads on to the the decision to have that conversation about who's who, what's your name, and so on and so forth. It does, yeah. So they, they sit around and say, we're a team now, we need to actually know each other, we need to work together. Who are we all? And they introduce themselves, they give their names. There's a really interesting bit here where 
Sang Wu says something quite intelligent. I can't quite remember what it was. And Ali is impressed by it. And Jihun immediately starts saying, this man went to such and such business school. And Sang Wu just stops him straight away. Cuts, cuts him, him off. off. Yeah. And this goes back to what we spoke about in previous episodes of how I believe that Sung Wu believes that thing is dead. That's the past and it's not the future anymore. And he's not interested in his past. Um, there's also a lovely moment when Ali asks a player 001 his name and everybody else, what's your name? What's your name? Who are you? What's, what's your, what are you called? Ali says, what is your name, sir, if you don't mind? He's just the nicest, most polite, lovely man in the world. Yes, and he also mistakes player four five six sixes name as his hometown. Yes, he does as well, yeah. What do you think about this, I suppose, then this sort of the way that they are portraying Ali? Is he just the child innocence? Is that what they're doing here? Or is there a little bit of a problem here that they're portraying him as being an immigrant? And a little bit stupid, perhaps, because he doesn't seem to know what an army training camp is at a point until it gets explained to him. So is it problematic or is it just a case of he's a child and this is the kind of thing that children would say and ask because he's so innocent and pure and an angel? Yeah, I, I think he is innocent and pure in that sense, because if you think about why Ali is in the position he's in, it's because he's came to that country and he's been given a very, very poor bottom rung sort of job where he's been treated awfully. And it's led him to become in this situation. He's not out there gambling debts. He's not failed his business and made done financial crime like others. It's He is there just because he's been dealt a really shit hand since he arrived in the country. We also probably don't, don't realise properly because we don't know Korean. He's speaking a second language to everybody else. And when you're reading the subtitles, you're reading what's been said. But you're not reading how it's been said or if it's been said properly and how it's coming across. So there could just be some translation issues and him not fully understanding the words that he's using or getting the words correct. And when we're listening to it dubbed or reading it off a screen, it's not so obvious. I don't think it's so problematic in that sense. I don't think it's the daft foreigner type trope or anything. I think there's problematic stuff coming up in this episode. I don't know if that falls into it, though. Not for me. Right, okay, we may as well jump to the problematic stuff then. So player 111 has convinced the gangster to be part of his team He's tending to his injuries because he's been stabbed in the leg. And this is when player 212 calls him babe, basically, and says, let's go to the bathroom. You take it away here, mate, because this was kind of shocking, I thought. Yeah, so off they, off they go to the bathroom together and they have a truly awful sex scene with him sat in the toilet pan and her on top of him. Afterwards, she tells him that she knows that him and the doctor are hiding something tells him I want you to stick with me until the end promise me he promises her and tells her he's going to stick with her until the end she asks him his name he finally tells her and she whispers to him that if you ever betray me I will kill you so if we had that bell for foreshadowing that would be going off just now but right after this Jack they go at it again another sex scene to be fair to the guy that is great stamina after a fight and just two eggs it's... <laughs> he's gone at it with her twice he's told her he's never going to leave her and she's given herself to him off the back of that to try and get in with him sort of thing. What he does to her later on in the episode is, is just horrific. Well, I mean, we'll get to that tomorrow, I think, at this point now. It's all set up that they're now together. He's going to look after her. And she's had sex with him twice. She's all in with him at this point, And he is not with her. Well, that's the thing. Like At this point, 
are the toilets open all the time? Because obviously 212 had to shout and scream to get to the toilet and kid on that she had diarrhea in the episode uh, a couple of episodes ago. Whereas now they've just been able to go to the toilet together and sort of do what they want. Is is it like a lockdown basically? Yeah, I think the first the first time it was night time and the door was closed, whereas this one they were they were free to come and go because it was daytime. I still think it, it, it is handy that they could go to the toilet just the two of them out of a hundred and seventy odd people or whatever it was at this point or hundred and whatever it was at this point. Was it just eighty at this point actually? Yes, there's only eighty left, I think, yeah. I think in a room of eighty people are going to find somebody in the toilet at all times, but they managed to get it to themselves and um off they went. But the last bit I think we'll cover on this episode we finish up is we go back to John Ho and he's lying in bed and he's taking some notes on his phone like he's been doing. I noticed, by the way, just as a wee check, 39% battery he's got at this point, Jack. Because I know I spoke about his battery life on his iPhone last um, episodes. But while he's taking his notes, he hears some coughing from the room next door and he quickly realises that the coughing is Morse code for the number 29, the room that he's in and obviously the number that he's taking over. We had a bit of a chat off air about what we thought this was about. And for me, it was number 28, trying to say to number 29, where were you today? I needed you for the organs and you weren't there. Talk to me. But obviously 29 doesn't know that and he just ignores it. Yeah, I, I was a little bit confused here as to what what it meant and what it was about, to be perfectly honest with you. Do they not have phone chargers in their room, maybe? Can he be charging his phone at night time? I don't think they're supposed to have phones. So right, no, okay. I don't think there's chargers. Which is fair enough, which is fair enough. I tell you what, mate, we'll get to some questions, queries and theories before we wrap this episode up. Questions, queries, theories. Drew has been back in contact all the way from Australia and he wants to speak a little bit about it. Hi 456ers, just before we get to your part of the show, we would like to let you know that we also do a show called Wrong Term Memory, where we cover some true crime, some 90s pop culture, a little bit of history, some science, a whole range of things really. Yeah, so if you enjoy listening to us, and not just listening to us talking about Squid Game, then just search in your podcast app of choice for Wrong Term Memory, or visit our website at wrongtermmemory.com. If you don't fancy doing that, you can offer your support for Player 456 by leaving a review or rating. Now, on with the show. Episode 3, so the last episode. I haven't heard anyone question why the guard who is forced to remove his mask and shown to be so young is a square. How is he risen to the rank and does this shed any further light on the structure of the guards? I think we vaguely spoke about this and I've got a theory about the guards, but what are your thoughts? So I'm not going to I'm not going to steal your theory because I think I know what you're going to say and I think it's probably correct. I think the answer to this, Drew, is we actually don't know. They haven't shown us on the show up certainly up until this point, and I don't believe up until the end either exactly how a role is determined and how you get one of the jobs, whether it's previous experience in other games or you show your skills in interview and you're given a role accordingly. I don't know, but I, I think you've got another thought, Jack, and I think it's probably closer to the truth. But it's just a theory at the moment, but I think it's just your luck as to what shape you picked when you got there as a guard. If you picked the red envelope in the underground, you went, you got told, pick a shape, you picked a shape and that's where you stand in the rankings basically. I don't think you you start 
necessarily as a circle and then moves to a triangle up to a square. I just think you're given a role and you need to go on with it, basically. That's my opinion, anyway. I think it's correct, to be fair. So I think you're, I think you're spot on. We don't get a definitive answer, unfortunately, Drew. Maybe in Season 2. Yeah, perhaps. Right, I think we'll wrap it up there, Colin. Nice one. I thoroughly enjoyed that, mate. Good talking to you, as always. Right, guys, we will speak to you tomorrow. <laughs>